0: It's Ben with Story Geometry, the desert of Tucson in the winter, it's the Monday after Super Bowl Sunday, and I'm on my way to interview Fenton Johnson, revered writer, both fiction and nonfiction, of contemplative thought, of a search for faith, of stories of rural Kentucky. Hinton, how are you? Good to see you? Great to see you as well. Thank you. Chillier than I thought in Tucson in the winter.
1: Well, you know, it's uh, 2,800 feet. I think that's the elevation of my house. So what I'm about to do, I waited to offer you. You don't whatever you want, but I'm going to make myself an americano, which is half espresso, half hot water. That sounds fantastic. I'll make one for you.
0: you <laughs> Please. Okay. While Fenton brews up some magic, here's what's happening in 2016 with season two of Story Geometry, the podcast about the craft and community of writing and storytelling. I am beyond thrilled to continue the partnership with a literary nonprofit and workshop series Writing by Writers. So I'll be releasing episodes monthly, the last Monday of every month, from February through November. So mark those calendars, and during that span, citizens in these United States be going through the arduous exhausting divisive process of electing a new president so there'll be some discussion about literature and politics and the intersection of the two closer to home 2016 is the year writing by writers co-founder pam houston is wrapping up her latest book a memoir with the working title the ranch a love story about life on her 100-acre ranch at 9,000 feet in colorado and at the other end of the literary cycle influenced by Pam, by last season's interviewees, and by you, yes you, story geometricians, this is the year I'm completing my long dormant, quite dusty work in progress novel. Having just revised the first 6,000 words, I've got an incredible amount of work ahead, but I've missed these characters. I'm glad they spoke up again, and glad they
1: demanded to have their story told. You know, Americans would come to Europe, and in Europe, coffee only meant espresso, and Americans weren't used to that at all. It was too strong, and too so thick. so the yep. European cafes started, they'd say, well, we'll make it for the Americans, we'll dilute it half and half.
0: As Fenton and I get settled in his living room, here's what's coming up on this episode nine, Initiative versus Destiny. You'll hear how he almost became a lawyer instead of a teacher and a Guggenheim fellow and a Lambda Literary Award-Winning Writer. In case you're not familiar, Fenton's books include the award-winning novel Scissors, Paper, Rock, the incredible memoir Keeping Faith, A Skeptic's Journey Among Christian and Buddhist Monks, and his latest novel, The Man Who Loved Birds. You'll also hear how the unlikely encounter with a fashion magazine changed writing by writer's co-founder Karen Nelson's life and an exciting update from the road. Award-winning teacher and writer Pam Houston calls in with an update on her memoir. So adjust those earbuds or headphones and stay with us. I wanted to dive in and talk more about the teaching aspect of your world. Fenton's taught in creative writing programs at San Francisco State, Columbia University, NYU, Sarah Lawrence College, and UC Davis. Currently, he's associate professor in creative writing at the University of Arizona here in Tucson and serves on the faculty at Spalding University's low residency MFA program. Are you teaching creative nonfiction, fiction, poetry, or analysis? What's the scope of the courses you're teaching right now?
1: I see myself always as teaching writing. You know, I gave a speech last week to my students about how they needed to read poetry and they needed to attend poetry readings that is a lesson that i got i got it early on from a lot of sources but the person who sparked it in my writing life as an adult was pam i forget when shortly after we first met she <laughs> made some sort of dismissive remark about a writer who didn't read poetry and i thought about that for a He's second like, i don't read poetry <laughs> i thought and, and i hadn't been reading much poetry and i thought about it for a second and i thought Oh, well, sure, of course she's right, you know, because poetry is, uh, is, is a distillation of, of writing, and, you know, one wants to have it in one's life in the way that one wants espresso in the morning or cognac in the evening.
0: I asked Pam about this and which poets she may have recommended back then, and without missing a beat, she rattled off Louise Gluck, Carl Phillips, Adrian Rich, So there's more for your to read list on Goodreads. Here's more from Fenton on the value and benefit of teaching.
1: I get different rewards from each undertaking, writing, and teaching. I say, I don't think my students believe me, but it's absolutely true that I always learn, I feel that I learn more from my students than I teach them because every aspect of the class teaches me something. The advantages of both teaching and writing as professions is that you'll never master either one of them. They always have something to teach you, to teach me. That is as true now as it was when I was 30. Did you come
0: out of the MFA program at Iowa and then publish your first book soon after? Or or were the connections there kind of a a direct correlation or or not so much?
1: It's a good story because it's a necessary story. I had gone to Washington. I worked as a press secretary on Capitol Hill for a couple of years right after college. And I saved up a little bit of money. And I said to myself, okay, I'm going to write for two years. I'm going to try to make my living as a writer. I'm going to try to make it whatever that means as a writer for two years. And if at the end of that two years I have not published something in what I consider to be a genuinely national venue, I will say that I... Fought the good fight and that I was really destined to go to law school and I would (laughs) go to law school. Eleven years later, I had my first genuinely national publication. Eleven years. There's a story of a a writing by writers personage that's uh, of interest here, Jay Schaefer, who uh, from time to time comes to writing by writers as a consulting editor. He was on the board of the now defunct San Francisco Review of Books. And you may remember Jay Schaefer was featured back in
0: episode four, our first look at the business of writing.
1: And I had just moved back to San Francisco, and it wasn't in my shy country boy's nature to go up to people who were on panels and thrust myself in front of them. But I was sitting in the audience and I thought, you know... You, you, if you're going to do this thing, you have got to do this. You you got to you got to break out of your shell. You got to go. You know you can't just send things in via the over the transom. You have to actually go engage. So I went up to Jay and stuck out my hand and said, uh, you know, I just came back from Iowa and I wrote book reviews for the local newspaper in Iowa City and could I write something for the San Francisco Review of Books? And Jay was the first person to publish my fiction. He's become a lifelong friend, a lifelong editor, and a consultant on my work. All of which is by way of saying, of testifying to the rewards of, of at judicious moments extending yourself beyond what you think is possible, what you've been told is possible, what you have told yourself is possible mm-hmm. with your life.
2: I was uh, recently graduated from college. I was writing on the T in Boston to my job, and I didn't have anything to read.
0: Speaking of judicious moments that alter life's trajectory, here's Writing by Writers co-founder, Karen Nelson.
2: So I picked up a glamour magazine that was sitting on the seat beside me, and for people who know me, that's not a magazine that I would normally read. So I flipped to the book review section, and there was a review on Cowboys Are My Weakness by a woman named Pam Houston that sounded fantastic. So I got off the train, stopped in the bookstore, and bought that, and so I'd have something to read on the ride home. At which point I fell in love with Pam's writing. You know, I got a mailer saying that I, she was teaching at the Aspen Writing Workshop, and I thought, ooh, that would be fun, and then kind of set it aside. And then I thought, no, wait a minute, I really could go to Aspen and study with her. So I had signed up for the workshop and had gotten in and was thrilled about that. So I was already kind of excited. It wasn't my first writing workshop, but it was early on.
0: Let's play the what if game just for a minute. What if Fenton hadn't gone to that panel featuring Jay Schaefer? What if Fenton hadn't approached him afterward and asked Jay if he could write reviews? Fenton's now published five books, including memoirs, creative nonfiction, and fiction, all of which have impacted thousands of readers. What if Karen hadn't rushed to buy Pam's Cowboys Are My Weakness? What if she didn't invest in her passion for writing and skipped that Aspen workshop? Certainly, writing by writers wouldn't exist in today's form. So a question I've been wrestling with. Do seemingly random acts of initiative dictate our path? Or does each and every one of us have a predetermined destiny that will unfold regardless of our actions? I clearly lean toward the former, but I'm open to discussion. As a personal example, I took the initiative to leverage years of video and film storytelling to attend a radio production workshop in Brooklyn two years ago, which in turn led me to pitch a podcast idea to Karen and Pam. And ta-da, Story Geometry was born. In fact, I asked Fenton about this new age of media that we're living in. Have you listened to many podcasts or were you familiar with the kind of Uh, the, the structure?
1: I've recorded podcasts for other people and I have listened to podcasts. I'm not a podcast, kind of guy mm-hmm. you know I don't I like silence a lot <laughs> and particularly when I'm walking around or driving I'll drive cross-country and then listen to and not is... listen to anything interesting because uh, that's my main I program. know Pam is the same way you know she listens to book I can't listen to audiobooks I get involved in the book and then I'm not driving and I next thing I know you I'm w- wandering <laughs> in somebody's lane or if you're like Pam and I and love great oral
0: storytelling especially while driving, then you've just got to know about today's sponsor, Talking Book, the independent audiobook publisher. Talking Book will produce your audiobook and get it pumping through the largest distribution network available to authors anywhere. Killer audiobooks like the wildly praised F-250 by New Jersey poet and novelist Bud Smith. With Talking Book, authors call the creative shots and receive the highest share of royalties. That means more control of your work and more money in your pocket. Go to talkingbook.pub and turn your story into your audiobook. Welcome back. This is Story Geometry Episode 9, Initiative vs. Destiny. Talking with inaugural Writing by Writers faculty Fenton Johnson and co-founder Karen Nelson. So Karen goes on to study with Pam Houston for several years in the private workshop called Pamfa for the Pam MFA. They get to know each other well, and then the economy tanks. University of California is facing severe budget cuts, which impacts Pam directly as then head of the UC Davis creative writing program. One of the casualties is their annual writing workshop in Tamales Bay, California, about 90 miles north of San Francisco and right next to the coastal town of Point Race.
2: We were out there for the weekend with the dogs on the beach.
0: Pam's readers will know that she's a wolfhound lover and owner, and Karen's been a chocolate Labrador mom for years. And you'll hear Karen's lab rusty, and my retriever Berkeley, scratching and playing on the ground as we talk.
2: And we ran into the people who run the Point Reyes Bookstore, and they said, why don't you come over for dinner, and we should talk about what would the Tomales Bay workshop look like without the University of California, Davis. So we did. After talking it through and sort of listening what the bookstore had to say about how much the community really appreciated what they'd done out there, we got into our separate cars and drove our separate ways and by the time we both got to our homes we had each individually thought well why don't we try this
0: and ta-da writing by writers is born initiative
2: we've certainly grown quickly we've tried not to grow too quickly we have added a workshop a year and what we've tried to do is identify where the, the holes are out there in the other workshops that are being offered. So, Tomales Bay is a very classic writing workshop and it's always been focused not on the publication side but on the craft of the writing. So that's sort of been the cornerstone. We only take a certain level of manuscript and we also have the classes that sometimes are advanced or intermediate, so we're screening everything to make sure that you're not gonna be put into a level that is inappropriate for you. But we also love working with, you know, all levels of writer and wanted to have a workshop that included everyone, Um, even if you had never really written a word up to people that were published authors and just wanted that inspiration. So that's why we developed the Boulder Generative Workshop. So it is a long weekend and is really focused on craft and writing exercises and just generating new work and building community.
0: To give you a taste, and in case you hadn't heard them, episodes one, two, and three are all pulled from the 2015 Boulder Generative Workshop and feature fiction writer Alan Heathcock, creative nonfiction writer and memoirist Gary Ferguson, and more from Pam Houston.
2: Because as all of us know, writing is a very solitary, Activity and it's easy to get lost in your own world. It's easy to feel like you're just floundering. It's easy to feel like you're staring at a blanking cursor and nobody understands what you're going through. And your friends keep asking when your book's going to be published and you haven't even gotten a word on the page and they don't even understand the whole process. Community is the really critical part of what we do with Writing by Writers because we do want it to be supportive. We want it to be people coming together where they can share their concerns, they can share their excitement, they can share their ideas, they you know share their struggles in a way that maybe they can't do when they're home alone or that other non-writers don't understand what the real um, pressures are. So having this community has been absolutely key to us.
0: In the spirit of community, Fenton shared an example of this solitary challenge.
1: We are all in our different ways solitary lions roaming the veld, and we like that aspect of we we like being a home we either we like it or we teach ourselves to like it we had better because you're going to spend a lot of time alone in the Mm -hmm. room with just you and the blank page I had another great trauma in my life and uh, I was coming back to the desk after that great trauma and I thought I can't face a blank page I don't have the strength right now to face a blank page I'll go back to something that I wrote earlier
0: So Fenton went back to the scene that had really stuck with me from his first novel, Scissors Paper Rock. I was so captivated by the early courtship, the trapping scene, the sense of language and dialogue, especially given an era gone by, and and, and then place that within a certain part of our country, within rural Kentucky. Did you spend a fair amount of time doing any research to to find that, or did it just it come from your work on those characters?
1: It took two years to work its way out because I, ca- I couldn't find the right voices. The day after we buried my, my family buried my father, my brother asked me if I wanted to help him go run traps at, you know, four o'clock in the morning, and the descriptive Parts of that narration uh, are basically what we encountered. I'd done it with my brother. I'm a gay man, so I kept trying to write the story as if there were two gay men. My brother is not gay. And it just didn't work. And I went mm-hmm. back to that story and realized that it was a man and a woman, not two men. And then it just, it wrote itself in, uh-huh. you know, two days. Uh-huh. Uh, and I changed hardly a word from um, how it wrote itself in those two days given my background
0: and interests in film and episodic television i asked fenton about other forms of
1: storytelling given
0: the age that we're now living
1: if i were younger and i wanted to tackle that world i would be seriously interested in writing for television because interesting stuff is happening on television i th- wonder sometimes if you know when when middlemarch and great expectations were published in the mid 19 the mid 1800s People literally lined up on the street to wait, you know, to be the first to snatch the next uh, chapter, the next installment of the story from the sellers when they came out. And that is clearly, obviously, analogous to how today's television storytelling is happening. And it may be that, you know, a series like, I don't know, The Wire or The Good Wife or or Six Feet Under or whatever, that those will be seen as the 21st century version of the serialized novel of the Mm -hmm. Victorian age.
0: I love this comparison. And Fenton's pick, three
1: iconic series. But he went on to say, The print medium has certain advantages that no other medium can supply. And one of them is a fantastic flexibility in terms of manipulation of time. It's one of the things I teach. In film, you can have your main character has, let's say, short hair in one sequence and long hair in the next, or no beard in one sequence and a beard in the next, and you know that time has passed. Mm -hmm. But nothing can compete with narrative prose on the page for saying three days earlier, comma, and If you've done your work and you have the reader in the fictive dream, then you're three days earlier or you're two years down the pike. And the flexibility of that is so marvelous and so inviting. And that's my medium. Mm -hmm. That's my natural medium.
0: I'd love to have you, I know you're about to dive into your book tour and, and launching the book would you be willing to read a
1: small piece you know one of the things on the list of things to do I got to figure out what I'm going to read from it I just I haven't it's uh in the point of view of the character named Johnny Fay who is a kind of Don Giovanni a uh a renegade Vietnam vet who lives outside the law mm-hmm. uh who lives for love everybody he comes near men women inanimate objects hungers for his body and he gives it to them and this is the last paragraph of the book. Smith is the name of the police officer.
0: Without further ado, here's Fenton reading an excerpt from his latest novel, The Man
1: Who Loved Birds. Johnny Fay has some few seconds before Smith walks to his fallen self and turns him over. Johnny Fay is skinny but broad-shouldered, and at first the policeman tries to accomplish this using only his foot. But that fails, and so he bends and takes Johnny Fay's bloody shirt in both hands and flips him so that his face is pressed to his mother earth, and then shoots him in the back, and that completes the journey. Johnny Fay crosses over. In those few moments of transition between here and there, the world is white-hot pain, and Johnny Fay's only and all-encompassing thought is: "This ain't happening. This ain't happening to me." But there is a place above and beyond and behind and before thought and this is some part of what lives there he is looking up at the night stars and he returns to the wide porch with the ladder back chairs and the cane woven seats that look across the chattering creek to the low rounded breasts of the knobs springtime and they are dusted with pink and white and unfurling green redbud and dogwood he is sitting with his mother and she is smoking her pipe and humming a tune known to him from before time and on the thin hum of her voice and the sweet smoke come the faces and voices and bodies of all the women and men he has known in the intimate way he has loved every one of them He regrets only those he let slip away or those whom he refused, almost always because of a failure of courage or his own stupid arrogance. How dumb, what a mistake! The lovely breasts of the women in all their variety, some round and full in the hand like melons, others small and sweet like peaches, and the men with the beautiful shallow S that runs from under the nipple into the biceps of the raised arm and their heady rich smell he is supremely happy at the memory of himself in their arms of them in his arms witnesses in a great cloud around him there had been nothing on earth worth doing but searching for love and allowing it to have its way the secrets of the cave the forthrightness of the pillar in death he loves them all that's the last paragraph fantastic i really wanted to Play with narrative suspense in the way that Alfred Hitchcock sets forth in a wonderful book, which I highly, highly recommend. Easy to read, quick to read, uh, which is Francois Truffaut's interviews with uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Mm. Hitchcock talks a lot about narrative suspense and who's a better master of narrative suspense than Alfred Hitchcock. Mm. And one thing he says is anybody can conceal information from the viewer or the reader and have it a surprise at the end any hack can do that the best way to create suspense is to provide that information to the reader or the viewer up front and have them participate in the process Mm -hmm. as the characters discover information that you already know to be the case Mm -hmm. and so with this book the man who loved birds i I'd like to believe the reader knows from the beginning that Johnny Fay is going to be shot. What else can happen to him? He's the, the figure of anarchy at a point in history when anarchy is definitely not in the public favor. More from my chat with Fenton will appear throughout season two. But
0: as we wrap episode nine, Pam Houston and I were chatting via cell phone about this interview and how things were coming with her memoir. And as things go, the call dropped... And then we simultaneously called each other back and left voicemails. Here's what Pam had to say.
3: Hey, Ben. I think the call dropped as I was going on and on and on. The very shortest answer is I'm so loving having this amount of concentrated time to work on it. It's just a slow damn book. So it's going well. And I hope to get a lot more done in these upcoming weeks. I need to because it's sort of hit the ground running starting March 28th
0: march twenty eighth is the annual association of writing programs conference or a w p this year it's in glorious Los Angeles California.
3: you know I'm making real progress, but it's a slow book and i i up till now I thought well it's a slow book because you're too damn busy and you're doing seventeen million things and which was true, but now i've had nothing but it to stare at for many weeks and it's still it's, it's slow but it but it's going you know I'm writing every day and I'm adding pages and i'm working shit out, but it just gets more and more complicated, um, which I think will be a good thing. You know, I have about 60 pages locked up, which represent the introduction and the essay at the heart of the book. I have another 160 pages that I wish were locked up, hoping that those will come together in the next few weeks. They need organization and polishing. And then I have about another 100 pages that are floating in my computer, and some of those go in the book and some of them don't. So that's where I am right now.
0: For those of you who follow Pam on Facebook and Twitter, and if you're not yet, why not, may I ask, then you'll know that Pam isn't shy about expressing political opinions, along with environmental or societal concerns. With election 2016 looming, and in a not-so-subtle reminder to get out and vote regardless of where you live, I'll close each episode this year with a brief reference to a literary work about or influenced by politics, politicians, or the policies of the era. First up, what you tell me. Here are the opening few sentences. To the red country and part of the gray country of Oklahoma, the last rains came gently, and they did not cut the scarred earth. The plows crossed and recrossed the rivulet marks. The last rains lifted the corn quickly and scattered weed colonies and grass along the sides of the roads, so that the gray country and the dark red country began to disappear under a green cover. That, of course, is the opening to John Steinbeck's Pulitzer Prize winning The Grapes of Wrath, about an Oklahoma family, the Joads, and their migration west to California after losing their family farm. The novel was released in 1939 and was born at the height of the Great Depression. Former ranch hand Steinbeck was writing articles on assignment for the San Francisco Daily News about conditions in the migrant workers' camps in the Central Valley of California, which along with time spent traveling across country with a migrant Oklahoma family, served as the foundation for the novel. Meanwhile, the 1936 presidential campaign featured incumbent Franklin Roosevelt against Kansas Governor Alfred Landon in an election that focused on economic class to a surprising extent. Even though 80% of the nation's newspapers endorsed Landon, Roosevelt won an astounding 523 electoral votes to Landon's eight. The Grapes of Wrath remained on the bestseller list throughout the next election year, 1940, when FDR won an unprecedented third term as president over wendell Willkie. So what literature is already out there that pulls on the energy and excitement, or the disgust, depending on your point of view, of the Obama presidency? what will come of this election cycle? What recommendations do you have about the past? That's all for today. We've gone from Hitchcock to Steinbeck, from Glamour Magazine to the San Francisco Review of Books. Quite a ride in considering initiative versus destiny. I'm your host and editor at Ben Hess on Instagram and Twitter, and we're also Story Geometry on Facebook and Twitter. Warm thanks to Fenton Johnson and Karen Nelson for inviting me to their respective homes and to Pam Houston for an update on her memoir. Don't forget to visit today's sponsor, TalkingBook.pub, to hear Bud Smith's new novel, F-250, or to submit your own story. Our theme music is from Mark Hodgkin, and additional tracks are from writer Greg Glazner's band, The Responders. Be sure to rate and review Story Geometry on iTunes and send feedback via storygeometry.org. And sign up for future Writing by Writers events and conferences at writingxwriters.org. Next time on Story Geometry, you'll hear from a later-in-life debut novelist, several surprising challenges from aspiring writers pursuing the craft, and another literary-political election year classic. Thanks for listening.